You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Moore. Slide a Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 133, and we're going to jump straight into things because of some uh, tight schedules on our part. So I want to welcome David Grubbs, Michael Farmer, and our special guest host, Charles Hackney. We'll talk a little bit about Charles's new project that's coming up in August later. But like I said, this is a weird episode. We're going to fire right in. So Michael, I won't deny that I've been looking forward to this week. Uh, largely because I'm not the one who's going to be summarizing an Aristotelian treatise. Uh, (laughs) It is now your turn. So tell us a few of the points of interest that arise in Aristotle's treatise, Peri Suces or De Anima, how it fits in with the big Aristotelian system and other such Greek things. You know, I... uh... Grubbs started it. Grubbs is the one who made you read the first Aristotelian one. Not me, Grubbs. (laughs) But I did go read De Anima or De Anima or however you pronounce it for this week. I struggled through it. It was very difficult. That that treatise is often translated on the soul, but to read it that way, you have to understand that what he means by soul is quite different from the Christian conception of a soul. It's not something that is immortal and that lives on after your death. In fact, he uses soul to mean somewhere, something between breath of life agent of perception, and mind. Something between the way we would use those three things. And he says, um, contrary to many pre-Socratic philosophers, that the the soul is neither completely connected to the body. I guess that that is also how uh, many neuroscientists would talk about it today, if they talked about it at all. Um, Nor is it completely separate from the body. In fact, it's this thing that kind of works through the body, and uh, depends on the body, and then ceases to exist in any meaningful way without the body. Uh, I suppose one way you could think about it is to say that the body is the form of the soul. Would that would that be about accurate, or is that is that misleading? And see, I, I have trouble thinking about Aristotle's notion of the soul apart from Dante. So what I always think of is the the fact that the shades in Purgatory always take the forms of the desires that distorted them while they were on earth. So, uh, you know, that's the, that relationship you just described is what I generally think of, but it's largely because of Dante, not because of Aristotle. And who knows what I'm reading into Aristotle. It's, it's not an easy treatise to understand, not, not, not least because the, the vision of what, of what the, what is translated soul in my edition. I use the, the new revised Oxford edition is, uh, is very different than what we normally think of when we think of soul. 
But he says, the thing I think is most interesting is he says, the soul is not something that decays. So if the, if the mind, let's say, were completely the brain, it would decay, right? The, the, when, when your brain decays, your mind decays, and you're no longer capable of thinking as well as you once were. Uh, what mm-hmm. he says is, yeah, he doesn't use the word brain because I, I don't think that he knew that the, the brain was the agent of thought or the, the material of thought. But he, he says that when your body decays, your soul cannot express itself any longer because it has to express itself through the body, uh, but that the soul itself remains largely intact and does not decay or change um, in that sense. Uh, Charles, did you ever have to read any Aristotle on the way through, or is this a, a new point of contact for you as well? Uh, well, Parapsyche is a new one for me. I've, uh, uh, I have read uh, Nicomachean Ethics, as that's relevant to uh, some of the stuff that I've done with positive psychology, but uh, mm-hmm. not that specific one. All right, all right. It's not uh, one of my favorites, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I will say, I mean, when I was reading this, and I mean, I I haven't read it since probably about 1997 before I was prepping for this show, Michael. What struck me is that, you know, the the notion of the sort of ghost that floats out of your body when you die, the the Patrick Swayze version of the soul, (laughs) uh, really is kind of alien both to Plato's Fido. Is it Fido? Yeah, it is. And to Aristotle's treatise on the soul. I mean, this is definitely a... A an organizational principle for the body, right? right? right. It's not yeah, some it's, sort it's, of it's, parallel body itself. It's its final cause. Yeah, to, to uh-huh. use some language we used a bit last week. Right. So once again, it's it's one of those things, and and I hadn't even thought about it on this level until, like I said, I was I was prepping for this show. But uh, the notion that you know what you see in, and I, I just use Patrick Swayze, so I won't go back to that one. But uh, what you see in something like the matrix or something like that uh isn't necessarily identical with what plato and aristotle were talking about so i don't i don't know where else to go with that well the other thing i think is interesting is Uh he uses that term soul for everything that's alive so plants have souls and animals have souls and people have souls but they're all these different Mm -hmm. specialized types of souls and so it's actually kind of leibnizian or i guess leibniz is kind of aristotelian in the sense that, in the sense that you know, the plant just has life. It has nutrition. I think is the term he uses. It has reproduction, um, but the the animal has perception, and then the human being has, of course, reason, because that's always for Aristotle what sets human beings apart from other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's really kind of a hierarchy here, and and all these things have life. I guess is the best the best modern translation rather than soul, because certainly most people don't think of plants having souls, although maybe in some sense we do, Mm -hmm. but not like ours. It's a pretty complicated treatise. Yeah. Is there anything you'd add, David? Well, since I didn't read the treatise, I can't speak directly to that, but the idea of the the three kinds of souls, that that definitely keeps cropping up uh, after Aristotle. And then, you know, interestingly, and and I mean, I'm not going to talk at length about it, but then uh, later on, Thomas Aquinas uh, sort of adds a fourth kind of soul because there's another order of created beings, namely the angels, which have, instead of reason, they have intellection, uh, which is to say an atemporal, sempiternal uh, soul. I'll just... (laughs) Must be nice. 
I, I just ran out of soul words, so I just repeat what I said before. <laughs> well, David, I do want to ask you about uh, some early Christian notions of the soul. Uh, in the early Christian era, I mean, theories about the will, the mind, desire, memory, the soul, all sorts of things are really cropping up in Christian writing, whether you call that Christian philosophy, Christian theology. Uh, theologian David Bentley Hart, in his book, Atheist Delusions, makes the claim that the explosion of philosophical psychology in the patristic and early medieval period relates directly to the conviction on the parts of those Christian writers that God has in fact become a human being with all of the psychological implications of that becoming. So all of a sudden, the human soul becomes supremely important precisely because God has assumed a human existence. Uh, now, I didn't ask you to read Hart's book for show prep. That would be mean. Uh, but take a few minutes to talk about the connections between Christology and psychology in those early Christian centuries. Sure. Well, since I didn't, I, I don't know exactly which books uh, David Bentley Hart read. I can't, I, I can't follow his footsteps, but I can point you towards the things that, I've, that I have read. The first uh, inklings of this that, I'm, that, that, that I know of um, at uh, Nicaea, when it was uh, firmly asserted that, uh, that Christ was very God of very God, uh, there was uh, a creed that not was it was not authored at Nicaea, but it it was generated uh, kind of in the generation following Nicaea, and so it was called the Nicene Creed. That says uh, that says uh, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and then it has a strong assertion of Christ's deity. But then it says, "Who for us men for our salvation." came down from heaven and was incarnate. So there's not only the assertion that Christ was God of very God, but also that for us humans, for us men, for our salvation was incarnate. So there's this uh, this tie between our salvation and the God-man. Mm -hmm. um, Athanasius is the one to, who I go to, to to look for those kind of early explanations of why the God-man, because, um, well, he, he wrote his on, on the incarnation. Uh, the short version is he was made man that we might be made God. So there's a kind of exchange of natures. Uh, I think you can best understand that particular short version by other parts of incarnation, uh, on the, uh, Athanasius on the incarnation, when he says things like the son from the father being the image of the father came to our place to renew man once made in his likeness and by the remissions of sin to find man who had, who had been lost. So there's a kind of renewal of the image of God in humanity, which requires Jesus to be human, uh, requires mm -hmm. the, the, the son to be human. Now in the generation after Nicaea, uh, you have the rise of a heresy called Apollinarianism that was so committed to the divinity of God the Son that it kind of couldn't come to terms fully with the incarnation. And so imagined the incarnate Jesus as kind of God in a man suit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a body, there's 
the kinds of animal passions that generate hunger and the need for sleep and stuff like that. But when you talk to Jesus, you're talking to God. Um, the, the, the intellection, the will, all of, all of what's going on, uh, personally speaking, um, in, in ways that we don't perceive, um, physically, all of that is, is Godness. Um, this was deemed unacceptable and this, and one of the main spokesmen for arguing against Apollinarianism was Gregory Nazianzus, Nazianzen, anyway, mm -hmm. Greg Naz. Nauseating who, Gregory. Yes. Who said that <sighs> that which Christ did not assume is not healed by Christ because only that which was united to his Godhead is, on, is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saved may be half only. But if the whole of his nature fell, that is Adam's nature, it must be united to the whole of him that was begotten and be saved as a whole. So Gregory's argument is that the problem with humanity is not just our bodies dying, it's it's our minds that think inadequate thoughts of God and our desires that seek after things that are not their good, their ultimate good, and our wills that choose the things they ought not. Mm -hmm. So uh, for Gregory Nazianzus, if that, that woundedness in humanity uh, is going to be heal healed, then the incarnation needs to be not only an incarnation of body, but also uh, an incarnation of the human, well, the human mind, human psyche. He talks about Christ taking on our minds because it with because Adam with his mind transgressed. So, so there we have that that issue of uh, Christ needing to take up our minds, and then a later issue crops up in the six hundred with the idea of how many wills are in the incarnate Christ. Mm -hmm. um, One of my favorite heresy names. Yeah, monothelitism versus diathelitism. Yes, indeed. Huzzah. Well, there's this little bit from uh, Agatho, the Bishop of Rome, uh, wrote a letter to be read at the Third Council of Constantinople in 680, who, li who, who, who says that Christ had to have not only a divine will, but also a human will, will in this case, theorized not as the intellect's function of choosing this or that, but rather as a, a seat of desires. Um, you know, where, where where do we get? You know, where does uh, where did our our desires come from? Where do those things that we want come from? And and he says that there that humans have desires that are part of their nature, so that. Uh, and he's quoting Ambrose about when Christ says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Uh, Ambrose says, uh, he then, he, Christ, receives my, Ambrose's will, he takes my sorrow, I confidently call it sorrow as I am speaking of the cross, mine is the will which he causes, which he calls his, because he bears my sorrow as a man, he spoke as a man, and therefore he says, not as my, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Mine is the sadness which he has received according to my affection. Mm 
so that while Gregory of Nazianzus was talking about the necessity for Christ to have a human intellect, um, here we have Agatho quoting Ambrose to say Christ must also have human affections, human emotions, human desires, mm -hmm. because those are things that also need to be healed. Right. And I'm done. All right, very cool. And I mean, the main thing that I want to emphasize there is that this is one of those areas of inquiry, I'll call it, where Christians become just immensely interested in uh, parsing and in examining and in, you know, taking on very important questions about the will. And as David just illustrated, uh, it's all related to the nature of Christ. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to I'm going to make the jump to light speed here. And Charles, I'm going to let you take us up out of the world of patristic <laughs> theology into the world of modern psychology. What sorts of things, Charles, does modern t psychology maintain from that hi philosophical history we, we just rehearsed? And what modern changes make psychology as a cluster of inquiries a markedly different thing? Well, um, psychology... Uh, has all since it uh, since its inception has always had a, a difficult relationship with philosophy. Uh, since early psychology was philosophy, uh, until the mid to late nineteenth century. Now, since uh, uh, my doctorate in psychology is uh, with a combined specialization of social and personality psychology, I'm going to use personality as an example. Um, the first personality psychology uh, we. It takes us all the way back to Theophrastus, uh, the student of Aristotle and the successor of Aristotle. Um, <clears throat> Theophrastus uh, is considered by many to be the first personality psychologist uh, with his, uh, his work, The Characters. Uh, he wants to systematically describe individual differences between people, uh, separating out uh, influences from outside of the person – for a focus on per influences inside of a person. The way that Theophrastus puts this uh, in the, uh, the prologue to the characters, he says, Often before now, I have applied my thoughts to the puzzling question, one probably which will puzzle me forever, why it is <laughs> that while all Greece lies under the same sky and all the Greeks are educated alike, it has befallen us to have characters so variously constituted. So what he wants to do is, <clears throat> um, to use to a little bit of statistical terminology since I just got done teaching some statistics. Uh, he wants to um, separate out the sources of variability from uh, within subjects, sources of variability, and with outside subjects, sources of variability, or between subjects. Um, <clears throat> so there, he, uh, he separates out the effects of the environment from effects of within-the-person differences. And uh, what Theophrastus ends up doing is creating a uh, sort of systematic theory of personality which focuses on identifying individual differences in terms of one's primary moral defect. Hmm. Uh, so if you know the person's primary moral failing, you kind of know what kind of person you're dealing with. So he's got uh, all sorts of characters. He talks about the chatty man, uh, the coward, the late learner, the reckless man, the gossip, the shameless man. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, he's creating this personality theory based on his moral philosophy. 
Now, if we go ahead, we skip ahead at light speed to the mid-19th century. <laughs> uh, in the mid to late 19th century, we see this push uh, to create a science of the person. So we have all sorts of stuff going on at this time. We have Auguste Comte in uh, 1852 uh, proposing an examination of the individual as both a cause and consequence of society. Um, in 1900, Wilhelm Dilthe is arguing for a science of unified individual human lives. And <clears throat> around the same time, we're seeing psychology as a field uh, separating off from philosophical psychology. 1879, Wilhelm Wundt uh, launches the first psychological research lab, primarily dedicated to perceptual research. And uh, psychologists, we point to 1879 as sort of the birth date of scientific psychology. Uh, and in this late 19th and early 20th century context, we have this massive battle over the identity of psychology. And uh, the battle lines are drawn between the old-school philosophical psychologists and these new upstarts, the experimental psychologists. Um, the way that, uh, in fact, uh, Wilhelm Wundt, well, so actually Wilhelm Wundt in a, a, uh, an essay in 1913 is sounding a note of caution, saying that we shouldn't be too quick to separate psychology from philosophy. But the way that he puts it in his essay is to say that uh, many psychologists are viewing uh, the relationship between philosophy and psychology as strained, and we need a divorce. <laughs> Jeez. <clears throat> now, um, Wundt is arguing that in the long term, this divorce is going to leave both philosophy and psychology the poorer, which is the side that I come down on in, in this. But many of the other psychologists love the idea of divorce and think it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. This is, this is, this is what we should be doing. Um, I'd say, you know, chief among these, the loudest voice would be the behaviorists. Uh, so, you know, John Watson in 1913 in his essay, he writes that psychology as the behaviorist views it is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. So the topics that the uh, philosophical psychologists have been discussing are now going to be approached from a natural science perspective. Uh, Watson puts it even more strongly in uh, one of his essays in 1928 <coughs> uh, when he, he argues that psychology will be supplanting philosophy in addressing these. He says, I'm quoting here, philosophy is passing, has all but passed. And unless new issues arise, which will give a foundation for a new philosophy, the world has seen its last great philosopher. <laughs> which is funny, seeing as how what has ended up happening is that uh, we've moved on from behaviorism. And with the passing of uh, B.F. Skinner in 1990, uh, the world saw its last great behaviorist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but getting back to the early 20th century, um, one of the people that I point of fingers at a lot – uh, for this is Gordon Allport. Uh, Gordon Allport is one of the leading voices in establishing this new personality psychology. And one of the things that he does is he uh, puts a radical divide between um, personality and character. Uh, he argues that personality is an objective care category that scientists can obje uh, examine. Um, Whereas character is a moral category. He says uh, character is personality evaluated. Mm -hmm. Now, 
So a lot of what we get from this early 20th century psychology is this ongoing rhetoric that uh, we are not philosophers. We are scientists. <clears throat> and so we are objective. We are um, dispassionate. We, we study uh, individuals free from these philosophical and uh, you know, value-laden entanglements. Problem is it never worked. <laughs> and even if we go back to Gordon Allport... It didn't work for Gordon Alport. Uh, in his 1937 book, uh, Personality of Psychological Interpretation, he talks about the difference between mature and immature personalities, which is a common one for personality psychologists. We do this all the time. Uh, Alport's description of a mature personality is someone who is confident, dignified, able to lose oneself in work, devoted to higher ideals rather than convention, loyal to others, self-insightful, open to experience, this is not exactly value neutral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if we go on, even uh, the most scientifically rigorous uh, data-driven personality approach that uh, we currently use, the five-factor model, um, two of the five factors of personality are agreeableness and conscientiousness. So we have never been able to successfully carry out this divorce. Um, we, the, the, the two parties continue to live together and influence each other, um, no matter how loudly one protests. So a lot of times what we end up with, um, and, and I believe that Wundt was right. I believe that uh, psychology especially uh, is the poorer for so stridently pushing this divorce from philosophy. What we end up with <coughs> are psychologists who implicitly smuggle in their uh, assumptions and uh, values, they just don't call them that. Now, there have been some recognitions that this has never worked. Uh, the existence, for example, of uh, Division 24 of the American Psychological Association, uh, the Society for Theoretical and Philosophical Psychology, we, we see some evidence of that. Um, but they, they sort of carry on this, this same criticism. So, uh, in an editorial in 2009, the president of uh, the Society for Theoretical and Philosophical Psychology, Thomas Teo, uh, he wrote, all psychologists rely on theories, either explicitly or implicitly, in their empirical studies and practices. But not all psychologists reflect on their own explicit and implicit theories and assumptions and contextualize them within philosophical domains. And this is a problem. So something that we're going to get to a little bit later, um, well, when we start talking about my work in positive psychology, I'm going to talk about criticisms of psychologists who don't make this move to be explicit about their theories. Um, but one thing I will say is that uh, I do have a tremendous fondness for psychological theories in which the psychologist makes their philosophical assumptions explicit. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example. Um, within developmental psychology, uh, one influential theory is Kohlberg's theory of moral development. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Kohlberg's writings, he's explicit about it. He states in one of his books, my theory looks the way it does because I've been reading a lot of Plato and Kant and John Rawls. <laughs> so you've got that background. Not a big surprise that you end up with a developmental theory uh, that holds – uh, rational contemplation of abstract principles of justice as the supreme form of morality. 
Mm-hmm. So I can disagree with Kohlberg, but I at least know where he's coming from, and we can have a conversation on that basis. Um, a little bit more in my own work, my doctoral dissertation was on terror management theory. And terror management theory uh, basically came about when uh, three uh, social psychologists, Greenberg, Pajinsky, and Solomon, um, they read the philosophical work of Ernest Becker Mm -hmm. and said, this is magnificent. We should make this a theory. So uh, the the, the current relationship between psychology and philosophy is strained. Mm -hmm. All right, all right. Well, one of the places, Michael, where that strain kind of shows up uh, is actually well before some of the theorists that, that Charles was just talking about in the writings of Richard M. Weaver, one of the one of the writers that we go to a fair bit on this podcast. But one of his essays in particular, uh, The Concealed Rhetoric of Scientistic Sociology, uh, makes the argument that, you know, psychology as it was practiced in his moment – uh, was turning vice into sickness and sin into mere stimulus response calculus. Uh, take us through a couple of his arguments, and if you're inclined, uh, give some of your own responses to Weaver's piece. His his big problem is exactly what Charles just described, actually, that there's nothing wrong with science, and there's nothing wrong with rhetoric, and there's actually nothing wrong with scientists using rhetoric. The problem is... The scientists use rhetoric and then say, I'm not using rhetoric, I'm using science. So science is a collection of facts, and, uh, and to some extent the interpretation of those facts. Rhetoric brings in value. Science, science can't talk about value by itself. It needs rhetoric. And so his, his problem is with turn of the century, or uh, I guess it's, not, it's mid-century, right? Mid-century mm-hmm. sociologists who use heavily scientific language, very jargony language, a lot of language that appears objective, a lot of figures, a lot of charts, a lot of graphs, things that make you say, you know, objectivity, scientific uh, stand-asideness. I, I don't know another way to say objectivity without, <laughs> without just saying it over again. Um, and yet, they're talking about proposals for changing the political atmosphere of America. And and at that point, there, there's no way to make such a proposal and to remain an objective scientist. You're going to have to insert your viewpoint in there, right? You're going to have to, you're going to have to use rhetoric. You're going to have to use some sort of value system, and you're going to have to use subjective judgments. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's how we talk about public policy, but you can't have it both ways. You can't. You can't uh, talk about value. You can't talk about the future. You can't talk about things that have to be done, need to be done, and say you're you're being an objective scientist. Mm-hmm. And so the the movement you're talking about about turning social sins into illnesses, I think, is is part of the covering mechanism. And there I go using uh, quasi scientific language, right? Um, Part, part of the, the part of the process of of covering one's tracks is to is to use value concepts in scientific language, and it's dishonest, right? It's not it's not it's not a legitimate way to talk. Uh, just say what you actually mean. Say that you have, as Charles, I think, very well put it. Uh, say that you have a philosophy behind this. 
and argue for the philosophy. I mean, I don't, I, you know, it's 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 baffling when you read that 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 anybody could possibly disagree with him on this point, and anybody could disagree with him who doesn't just want special treatment for his own philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an essay that seems so reasonable and straightforward that. <laughs> it's it's bizarre that it needed to be written at all, but I know that it did. I know that I know that this was a real problem in 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 sociological discourse, and I'm sure to some extent it remains a problem today, because as as I've said before, the scientist is still the one who gets the social respect. So if you say anything, you have to say it in a scientific way. Um, although I, I, I think it's less the scientist now and more the technician, the engineer who gets the, the social respect at Silicon Valley. Yeah, although I, I still hear sometimes, I mean, the rhetorical move of saying, you know, uh, you can, you know, have your opinions all you want, but this is what science says. Right, science says, it, which is infuriating because science doesn't say anything. <laughs> And, and, and yeah, I, I mean, there are obviously things that the vast majority of scientists disagree, uh, to agree on, rather. And, and we don't, mm-hmm. you don't want to just throw that aside. I think it's silly just to throw that aside. But that, that's not the same thing as saying this is an objective fact. This is saying, you know, the people who have studied this, this is the conclusion almost all of them have come to. Mm-hmm. And that, that's worth considering. But that's a rhetorical <laughs> argument, not a scientific argument. Right. And specifically, it's an appeal to authority. Right. And which, you know, as I think Weaver points out in that essay, appeals to authority are fine as long as the authorities are authorities in what you're appealing to them for. Mm-hmm. There, there's no there's no appeal to authority fallacy in asking a bunch of climatologists about climate change. Mm-hmm. Charles, you want to weigh in on that? Uh, only that I haven't read any Weaver, but I'm certainly going to now. Yeah. Well- <laughs> <laughs> It, well, I, I, it really was like you were paraphrasing that essay when you were answering that question. Charles. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was really nice. I, I really didn't have to segue at all into <laughs> it. So, oh uh, well, then maybe I don't need to. <laughs> you, you made you made me redundant. There we go. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because, of course, Weaver is writing, you know, during the same the the same rough span of decades as you know writers like C.S. Lewis who are making the same sorts of claims in books like The Abolition of Man, right? Uh, Do you know and, where else you find that argument, oddly enough? Where's that? The first chapter of The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. Oh, fascinating. She Say said, a little bit more about that. She says, let's not worry about objectivity. Let's state what we're doing at the outset. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. I, you know, I don't vouch for everything in The Second Sex, and I'm not sure anybody does anymore. But that that is as that that is as worthwhile a uh, claim as any I've ever heard. Let's, let's not... Objectivity in the, in the social sciences is not the thing to strive for. Honesty is. Okay. Alright. Sounds like a winner to me. Uh, well, Charles, I, I want you to talk a little bit about your home turf in the field, which is positive psychology. I'll go ahead and make a quick uh, pitch for Christian Humanist po- Profiles, our interview show. Uh, Charles was actually one of the very first people who got interviewed on that show about his book, Martial Virtues, which is, among other things, an introduction to positive psychology in the field of uh, martial arts training. So, Charles, you can talk about uh, karate as much as you like, but uh, certainly Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about positive psychology for a bit. I can do that. 
So um, to set the stage for positive psychology, I'm going to take us to World War II. Um, uh, so World War II happens, and we, uh, we end up with uh, tremendous amounts of GIs coming back from the front uh, with uh, what we would today call uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, what at the time they called uh, combat fatigue, and in World War I they called shell shock. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the existing uh, medical system was not equipped uh, to deal with these. Uh, the U.S. Army, for example, saw over half a million medical discharges for psychiatric reasons. Um, there were just not enough psychiatrists. Uh, and the psychiatrists that they had were primarily uh, going to approach were, – were, were trained for neurological disorders or psychoanalysis, neither of which worked. Um, or, or sorry, I'll, I'll at least say neither of which were needed here. Um, these individuals did not need to be institutionalized. Uh, they did not need in-depth uh, psychoanalysis. What they needed was, um, uh, at an outpatient level, uh, treatment for their anxiety-related uh, problems connected with these this combat-related trauma. <coughs> and so the existing psychological establishment is trying to figure out what to do. And uh, they decide to turn to this uh, sort of obscure, uh, disrespected side area of of clinical psychology. Pre-World War II clinical psychology um, was primarily uh, people doing um, psychoeducational assessments and a little bit of consulting. They weren't really dealing with big-time mental health issues. Um, and they were so marginalized that uh, one of the debates going on pre-World War II within the American Psychological Association was whether or not to even allow clinical psychologists into the APA. Uh, and the argument is they're not real psychologists. Mm-hmm. Real psychologists are scientists. Who would never make a value judgment like real psychologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, they do it. It would just be objectively true. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but these clinical psychologists, they're just over there monkeying around with their uh, assessments and practical applications and things like that. And eh, we don't really need them. <clears throat> well, after World War II, um, Veterans Affairs starts dumping truckloads of money on the clinical psychologists to start coming up with. Um, with new PhD programs, uh, with um, new practices, uh, with uh, ways to help all of these veterans, and it exploded. I mean, it talk about you talk about following the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, this influx of funds into clinical psychology was so successful that by the time we get to 1962, the clinical psychologists outnumber the researchers in the APA. Mm-hmm. So and to this day, the American Psychological Association is dominated by clinicians instead of by real psychologists. <laughs> <clears throat> so now we move ahead to 1998 and uh, Martin Seligman becomes president of the American Psychological Association. Cool thing about being president of the American Psychological Association is you get, you get to tell the other psychologists about psychology. And in his presidential address, he argues that um, – this post-World War II psychology with the rise of clinical psychology, that's not been bad. 
I mean, this is about helping people. This is good. Uh, but it's moved us away from our roots uh, and created a, an imbalance in the field with an overemphasis on the negative. Most of psychology has become about taking people who are suffering and helping them to suffer not as much, which is not bad. It's just, you know, only half of the picture. So he calls for this new science of human strengths, optimism and courage and work ethic and things like that. <clears throat> and he, he announces that the theme of his tenure as president is the recovery of the mission to make people's lives better, not just less bad. And it didn't hurt that he also had a truckload of money, uh, this time coming from the Templeton Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he announced at this time the Templeton Positive Psychology Prize, which was the largest monetary award ever given in psychology. And from there, positive psychology has just taken off. It's been a phenomenal success story at a professional level. Uh, so this presidential address was in 1998. January 2000, American Psychologist runs a special issue introducing positive psychology. 2004, we see publication of our first major reference volume, um, Peterson and Seligman's Character, Strengths, and Virtues. 2005, the University of Pennsylvania launches its Master's in Applied Positive Psychology uh, program. 2006, we see the first positive psychology textbook. 2006, we also see the, the launch of the Journal of Positive Psychology. Psychology. 2007, Claremont Graduate University launches the first positive psychology PhDs. Um, 2008, the U.S. Army starts um, working on the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program, which is the application of positive psychology um, to enlisted personnel, uh, which they roll out with in a big way in uh, 2011. And we could do a whole episode just on that. Mm -hmm. That would be fun. Um, <laughs> so positive psychology has just exploded uh, over the past several years. Mm -hmm. Now, what got me into this, so first off, I, I have the, a distinct recollection of myself as an undergraduate uh, in, um, <clears throat> uh, in some of my, my classes, looking at some of the stuff that I'm uh, being, uh, being taught and thinking, you know, this is really cool. If what you want to do is uh, work with people who are not doing well and help them to do better. I wish there was something psychology could do with people who are not mentally ill to help them do even more better. Now, of course, because I was a kid um, and a nerd, my mind immediately went to superheroes with their amazing powers of good mental health and high levels of interpersonal functioning. <laughs> but, of course, this is in the mid-90s. This is before Seligman. So I was just kind of out of luck. Uh, but another thing that got me into this, uh, I minored in philosophy as an undergraduate and did an independent study on Alasdair McIntyre's After Virtue. Um, and I thought it was great. I thought it was wonderful. And my head got twisted in all sorts of interesting neo-Aristotelian directions. But I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. It was cool, but, you know... Um, but then I come across this positive psychology literature, and a whole bunch of them are citing McIntyre mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, explicitly taking a, um, a, a broadly Aristotelian view of flourishing as the overall conceptual structure for positive psychology. So I'm going, great. I get to bring my interests together in this. This is wonderful. Um, and also... Uh, part of what we see in the positive psychology movement is uh, what I saw 
as a, a way to sort of help bridge this psychology philosophy divide because now character and virtue are acceptable topics for scientific psychologists. So I, so I got all excited. I you know, um, <clears throat> delved into the literature, uh, to, ended up shifting my emphasis. I mean, my original work was in experimental existential psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing you know, I'm a uh, neo-Aristotelian sort of virtue psychology sort of kind of person thing. Mm-hmm. There's some and, yeah, and there. There is. There's, <laughs> and, uh, and this is a big part of what led into uh, my work on the psychology of martial arts. I was also in, I mean, I was interested in the psychology of martial arts, partly because I was and continue to be uh, a martial arts practitioner myself, <clears throat> but also because there are a lot of psychological claims being made by practitioners of the martial arts. Uh, and you know, I go into this in more detail in the, yeah, in the, the, the Christian humanist profiles episode. Mm-hmm. And I had a sore throat then too. So, yeah, I know I'm, I'm bad luck for you, Charles. You are. Um, <laughs> it, it, we're going to have to, uh, have me on one more time to see if three makes a pattern. Yeah, there you in, go. <laughs> in which case, we're never going to speak again because you're bad for my throat. Okay, fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. We're going to launch. We're going to launch the Book of Nature podcast, and nobody, no, no listener, will recognize me because I'll have my real voice then. Right. It's just because right. it's just because you yell when he sends you the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the uh, the other major emphasis uh, in my work in positive psychology. Uh, connects us to uh, what we would call the integration literature, which also by itself could be an entire episode because I have I could talk for days about this stuff. Um, <laughs> the issue here is um, developing a Christian perspective on psychology uh, because Christians make a number of statements about the human condition. Psychologists make a number of statements about the human condition. So how can we – how can a Christian who is a psychologist uh, do both? in a way that does justice to both. And there's an entire scholarly literature on that topic. Um, My particular work has focused on sort of bringing my ongoing studies of McIntyre connected with uh, some theological uh, inquiries uh, into a critique of the positive psychology movement and constructing what I believe anyway to be a better alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just so uh, I, I believe that this is not just a Christian version of this, but I think there are actual um, benefits. I think we can actually do a better job. So first part. Um, so Martin Seligman, uh, even though he appeals to Aristotle, and uh, we see some. Um, you know, eudaimonia being used in this teleological language. Uh, the problem is when it gets to the point where uh, we have to specify a telos, he doesn't want to do it. So for the listeners who aren't hip to this, uh, the basic idea for uh, this you know, kind of Aristotelian conceptual structure is uh, we're going to look at the current, our current human state, what we are right now. Uh, we have a vision of the ideal human state, uh, which is tied up with our end, our goal, our purpose. The Greek word there is telos. And an investigation of ways and means of moving toward that telos. So Mm. uh, if we're going to talk about highly functioning humans, we have to ask the question, what's the function? 
<clears throat> you know, what, what, is, what is the purpose of being a human? What do we do as a species? And Seligman doesn't want to do that. Um, so I accuse him of being, and I'm not the only one, I accuse him, among, I among others, I accuse him of being trying to be two-thirds of an Aristotelian. Because he wants to talk about the current human condition, he wants to talk the pro- about the process of flourishing and eudaimonic growth, but growth toward what he will not say. Um, another, there's another psychologist, Luis Sundararajan, who uh, ripped him a new one over this, uh, said it's like uh, a map with no destination. Mm-hmm. You never know if you're making progress if you have no goal. Um, another, uh, so she says that there is no moral map. To, to Seligman's positive psychology. I also like another turn of phrase that she used. She calls his psychology a happiness donut with no core. <laughs> <laughs> so now we could get into more of this because another angle that we could take is uh, others have accused Seligman of implicitly smuggling in a telos. Because when we start seeing descriptions of what we're trying to accomplish with all of our interventions in, uh, to f- facilitate flourishing and all of our studying of flourishing people, it's in the context of individual subjective gratification. Mm. So the implicit telos of flourishing is that I feel good about it, that I am satisfied. Um, so it's Something. replacing Aristotle with James Brown. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I, I was going to say, that's not a million miles from uh, logotherapy, right, in, in existential psychology. Um, I, being a huge Viktor Frankl fan, I'll just have to say, don't get me started. Okay. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like Frankl, too. I, oh yeah, Love I think Frank. I may also be two thirds of an Aristotelian. Is why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, you really are, farmer. You really are. <laughs> so my argument is that as Christians working in positive psychology, we don't have that problem because we're okay with humanity having an end to goal and a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, for the summary statement, I go to the Westminster Catechism. Question number one: What is the true end of man? It's a teleological question. The answer is, the true end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's our telos. That's what it means to be a highly functioning human. Somebody who does this well. So um, when we talk about flourishing, we're not going to talk about facilitating my own subjective um, satisfaction, but something beyond the self. I can, I can bring in the Frankel here. Um, <clears throat> so flourishing, rather than being self-centered, is about overcoming self-centeredness. Hmm. Um, I, go, I mean, I, go for, I've, I've, I have a number of publications, and if, if we go chronologically, I'm kind of working backwards. So I start by talking about the telos, and then I talk about the process, and then I talk about the beginning point. Um, when I, when, when I start talking about developing a Christian positive psychology, um, I, dr- I try to draw from some theological resources to try and figure out what Christians over the century have said about this process of flourishing and becoming somebody who better fulfills the human telos. And a lot of it, we already have a word for this, sanctification. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> um, and... 
uh, when theologians talk about the process of sanctification, the ultimate goal of it is to glorify God. Now, there's also a proximate goal. So uh, how do we become that kind of person? And that is to become like Jesus. So part of our understanding of flourishing uh, will involve the development of Christ-like character. And for some of this, I bring in um, uh, the work of Nancy Murphy. She's a Christian philosopher uh, over at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary Mm -hmm. uh, who focuses on – I mean, earlier in the episode, we talked about Christology, possibly connecting it. Uh, She ties it into kenotic Christology, Mm -hmm. uh, tying it into the section of Philippians 2 where it talks about um, what Jesus does is he made himself nothing. Mm. And the Greek word there is kenosis. It means self-emptying. So – um, Jesus emptied himself, and we are to be like that. I mean, that, that's the context of the verse. We should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking mm-hmm. on the very nature of a servant. So that's if we want to be highly psychologically functioning humans, that's what we need to do. Mm. Um, so, and again, this is going to end up being very different from a seligmanic approach, uh, because Seligman's approach is uh, to identify our signature strengths, ident- identify the things that we're good at, and then cultivate our gifts um, with the goal of being happy about it. Mm-hmm. Another major thing is um, if we're going to bring sanctification into this, sanctification is not only a uh, the result of human effort. It is also at the same time – so, you know, uh, <clears throat> sorry, um, it is all at the same time a work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to have to ask the question, what will that look like? A positive psychology in which we view the Holy Spirit as an active participant in the process of flourishing. It also means we're going to have some virtues and some character strengths that are not on the positive psychology list. Mm. Um, one that I focus on is penitence a disposition to feel guilty when we have done something wrong. Now, you get into the, uh, the literature on sanctification or on spiritual formation, you find from a number of different sources and a number of different angles the idea that the more mature we become, the more Christ-like our character, it brings with it an increased sensitivity to our failings. So the things that didn't used to bother us when we were less mature now bother us. So we become mm. more guilt-prone, mm. which, is, which, which is also fun because there's some research that is not connected to positive psychology. Um, people like June Price Tangney and uh, Roy Baumeister <coughs> uh, who are finding evidence that guilt is good for you. It is right and healthy that you feel guilty when you have actually done something wrong. Now, if you haven't done something wrong, we're in a different issue. But um, guilt... Uh, facilitates things like the restoration of relationships. Uh, it buffers against future uh, transgressions. Um, some of the correlational research have found it to be associated with a number of desirable um, outcome variables. So both from a theological perspective and from a psychological perspective, I can say that penitence is something that we should be cultivating. But if you go to the descriptions of the virtues within mainstream positive psychology, you won't find that anywhere. Mm. <clears throat> so finally getting to, you know, finally getting to the beginning. So basic human nature, uh, what McIntyre called untutored human nature. Um, 
one of my critiques of mainstream positive psychology is that it is uh, on overall unbalanced toward excessive optimism in their basic assumptions about human nature. <clears throat> this can be a problem. Um, there's a whole lot more I could do. I could go into this, but uh, I'll say this. So contrasting with a Christian approach. So um, you can ask the question, is, is basic human nature good or bad? If you were to ask a Freudian, assuming you can find one these days, um, that's train. Say, don't get me started. <laughs> Although I did like that show. <clears throat> um, a Freudian would say bad. You ask a humanistic psychologist, uh, is hu basic human nature good or bad? They'll say, good. You ask a Christian, is basic human nature good or bad? We will say, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, see, we are both. And it's not even both to say that we sort of balance out and we're neutral. We are both. We are both good and evil. Uh, we are created good, but we are also fallen and corrupt. And so if we're going to talk about, if we're going to do a psychology from a Christian perspective, we need to develop psychological theories that um, see human nature as this mixture of good and evil, and we should see, um, <clears throat> and, and we should develop interventions and practical methods that reflect that. Because if we see human nature as basically bad, then high levels of functioning are... Um, are accomplished by combating against ourselves and imposing restrictions on ourselves. If we see human nature as basically good, then it's the opposite. High levels of functioning will come from releasing inhibitions and uh, removing restrictions. If we're going to say it's both, we will need both. So a Christian positive psychology will see flourishing as a process of cultivating that which is good within us and simultaneously combating that which is evil within us. And the self-combat um, is nowhere found in mainstream positive psychology. Another thing that this gets, gets us into is the badness of the human condition will never be fully erased within our lifetimes. That's an eschatological concept. So true happiness, absolute you know, the highest levels of functioning is an eschatological concept. Hmm. One of the things that this does is that frees us from burdensome delusions of self-perfectibility. <clears throat> and there's a whole other thing that I could go off on here about what happens if you begin with the belief that the human condition is indefinitely perfectible under our own power. Focusing just on positive psychology one of the things that can happen is if you can flourish because you choose to and you put in effort, then what do you do with people who are not flourishing? Mm -hmm. Well, if I provided the right conditions, if I provided you with the right training and you're not flourishing, well, get with the program. <laughs> and so excessive optimism can bring with it a judgmentalism. And if you get into some of the literature, I mean, not, certainly not everybody. Uh, positive psychology is not a monolithic school. It's more than an umbrella term. But in certain corners of the positive psychology literature, you can find that judgmentalism. Um, one of the worst examples of this is the application of positive psychology to health psychology. 
<clears throat> there were some studies that uh, came out suggesting that um, the possibility exists of greater survivability among cancer patients if they maintain a positive outlook. Oh, well, that's a landmine. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Also, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be dead before the diagnosis came in. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of this is that the researchers replicated this study with better methods and found nothing. And I have never seen researchers happier in their lives to find nothing. I bet. <laughs> because already we were seeing fallout. Um, <clears throat> cancer patients were starting to feel guilty if they're having a relapse because they must not have been positive enough. Oh. Uh, things were it's happening kind of like the faith healer thing, right? Where oh, if, you're, yeah. if you're not healed, well, you don't have enough faith. People would get into these uh, these online support communities uh, for I mean one of the big ones the, the original study was with uh, breast cancer patients so women would get into these these support groups uh, for people who are dealing with breast cancer and they'd be looking for a little support and one of the things they might say is I'm having a horrible day I can't maintain a positive attitude I don't think I'm going to make it through this everything feels like it's going wrong I just feel awful and some of the members of the group would turn on them saying you're poisoning the atmosphere with your negativity, get out. (laughs) So we hold out the idea that um, you can choose to flourish. And if it's your choice and your effort, then there's nobody to blame but you. And part of my argument for one of the advantages of a Christian positive psychology is that if we believe that the wrongness of the human condition will be inextricable Mm. until the eschaton. That brings with it not only a solidarity with the broken and the transgressor, but also an expectation of chronic failure. So we can make progress, we can do better, but when we fail, we should not be surprised. And we should Mm -hmm. not blame. Right. So if we've got any new atheist listeners out there, I just want you to witness that... uh monstrosity is perfectly available to those who do not have Christian theology. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, that is some good stuff. I, uh, and, you know, again, listeners, I just want to go ahead and make another pitch for Book of Nature, which is the new uh, podcast that's coming out with Charles and Todd from last week and Dan from two weeks ago. Uh, it'll probably start dropping this August, but you will get to hear all three of these minds talking to each other, uh, and voices too. Uh, it ought to be a lot of fun. So, uh, David, I am going to cheat a little bit for the next segment, but I know that our <laughs> listeners have missed hearing you talk about Tolkien. So I'm going to tee you up here. Uh, Tom Shippey writes that the one ring in the fellowship of the ring derives some of its literary character, neither from platonic dialogues, nor from medieval notions of depravity, Though those are in there, too, to be sure, but from some very modern notions of addiction. Uh, so, David, tell our listeners, uh, in what ways is Gollum a Mordor dope fiend, and what's <laughs> going on psychologically when Frodo can't throw that blasted ring away, even when he knows that doing so will save the whole world? This also ties in well to my current voice issues. My precious! <laughs> precious is mine! Lord have mercy. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, what does Gollum have to do with the, as a more mortar dope fiend other than the fact that he looks like a half-scale Iggy Pop? 
<laughs> yeah. Where does Tom Shippey say that? I, uh, I've I never it's in uh, Tolkien, uh, author of the century, or what's the name of that book? Is that the name of it? Oh, the the big main Tom Shippey book about Tolkien that I've never actually gotten around to read. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I just assumed that if there was <laughs> Tolkien lore to be had, that David Grubbs had it. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> in this case, yeah. This well, case. Well, let, well, let me try to rehearse his argument. I mean, he says that much of what you see in Gollum and the relationship between Gollum and Frodo and the ring certainly has platonic roots, certainly has medieval roots, uh, mm-hmm. but it also has roots in the burgeoning science of addiction uh, that is prevalent in 20th century medicine. And he mm-hmm. says that, you know, Tolkien is in some ways experimenting with this psychology of addiction and seeing what happens when he puts it into contact with the more medieval mindset of much of the rest of the novels. What do you think about that theory? Well, when I went back to the books, I started, you know, kind of pulling out some of the notable ring passages and, and just noting, noting some things and, and putting on this new set of glasses that makes me look for drug references (laughs) and and not just in the Tom Bombadil section. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, yeah, that one's already, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a psychedelic man. Um, one interesting thing from Gollum is in The Hobbit. Okay. In The Hobbit, Gollum refers to himself as oh, – Gollum keeps saying, precious, my precious. All right. And in the, in the Hobbit, that self-talk is explained as this is Gollum talking to himself. Right. He is referring to himself as my precious. Mm-hmm. Now, in the shift between Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and it was um, – Hobbit was written with completely different ideas in mind. And when uh, Tolkien was asked to write a sequel to The Hobbit, he had to latch on to something in The Hobbit that that could be the anchor for the next thing. And the ring was the thing that he attached to. And so some of what you see in The Hobbit gets sort of reimagined in, in The Lord of the Rings. One of those things is what Gollum's My Precious means. In The Hobbit... It's self-reference. In The Lord of the Rings, it's the ring. Mm-hmm. So if nothing else, I think I could say something about the idea of ego displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the, the ring is so much a part of him that the ring is him. The, you know, it's, it is his precious in the same way he is his precious. He's, he's, he's identified himself with it. Um, so even even after he loses it, it's not something that he can get over. It's not something he can shake. And we see that in, uh, well, we see that in Frodo too. Um, Frodo, even even after everything is over, right? Um, the the ring has fallen in the mountain doom. All the rest of that. Um, Frodo has these relapses. Uh, in you know, in the Shire, he's found lying in the bed, half in a dream. It is gone forever, he said, and now all is dark and empty. Right. So I think you kind of see, you you see in Frodo even even that kind of uh, atta- attachment to the ring, such that now that it's gone, he he now all is dark and empty. He is no longer 
all himself. He was so identified with it. Um, you also uh, asking about why doesn't he throw it in? Well, this is interesting. This is what he says. I have come. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And then he puts it on his finger and he vanishes. Um, at least in Frodo's mind, the act that makes him pull back from the aim of his quest, you know, what makes him pull back from the aim of his quest is, is an act of will. I choose to do this. I will not do the thing I set out to do. I will do this other thing. He feels utterly in control. That's mm-hmm. what the sentence seems to be telling me by its diction. Um, but when you look at Gollum's attitude to the ring, the um, the way the ring is 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 indistinguishable from his self, um, the way that Frodo has such a hole in his self after the ring is gone, is he choosing? Is he not? I don't, you know, to what degree has the ring even, you know, t- t- taken over even even the will? And we and the only time we really actually get to see the experience of of the of the ring uh, when put when Frodo puts the ring on a few times you get some notion of what it does to his to him visually and his perception of space around him you get to kind of trip with him hmm. but the only time you actually get a full notion of what it feels like for the ring to be working on you morally is when Sam puts it on. Mm-hmm. And Sam Sam is, you know, he gets he gets he gets dropped into a deep deep dark trip without even, you know, kind of working up to it the way Frodo did. And as a result, it feels I think more alien to him maybe than it did to Frodo. When Sam puts on the ring, he immediately perceives this completely unrealistic altering of perception. Um the ring offering to help him remake mortar into one giant garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which and is a, Sam, great, a great passage. I've got to say, I, I love it. I love it so much, but Sam's <laughs> reaction to that is, yeah, I just, I just want my own little hole. I don't want to make the world a garden. I just, my own, I just want my own little piece. He rec- he recognizes the, the wrenching and twisting of perceptions that the ring creates um, even as his own desires, he recognizes it as warped and so rejects it. He doesn't get lost in it, um, which I think which I think Frodo does in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess that would be my 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 ring is drug. The idea of of lose, losing your losing your even your sense of self and then the idea of your perceptions of reality being so skewed that what to everyone else and even to your, to your lucid self seems complete irrationality seems not only to make sense, but it's the thing you will emphatically choose. Mm-hmm. Charles, how big a Tolkien person are you? Uh, I love the Hobbit. Not so much the other three. And I'm not even going to touch the Silmarillion. All right. The Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> I take umbrage. All right. If I wasn't a Christian, that would be my Bible. Well, guys, once again, these science episodes are long suckers. 
Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start steering us towards the door. So, Charles, Michael has already given our Book of Nature physicist, Todd Pedler, a chance to tee this up. So now it's your chance. Why does a podcast like Book of Nature need a psychologist on board? Uh, what is good and right about keeping the social sciences, or whatever term you prefer, as an element of the scientific picture? Um, well, we've got the short answer and then the real answer. Uh, short answer, it's the book of nature. Humans are part of nature. So we're in the book. <laughs> yep. Real answer, because it will be fun. We've got, we've got a meteorologist, a physicist, and a psychologist. All we need to do is the three of us walk into a bar and we've got something going. I thought that might be where you're going. <laughs> I mean, between the three of us, we have such widely divergent specializations that uh, there actually are times that it, it does make me wonder if we, in fact, have enough in common to have the conversation. And I don't actually know. We haven't recorded the first episode yet, but it should be interesting. I mean, really, I think, I think there are things that we can talk about where having a psychologist on board could enrich the conversation. Mm. I mean, for one thing, the fact that this question is being raised – yeah means that having a representative of the so-called soft sciences on the team opens up opportunities for us to ask the broader question of what is science mm -hmm. by considering whether psychology is on the inside or the outside of the boundaries between the categories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we can have this discussion as a psychologist. What am I? Am I a scientist? Am I a semi-scientist? If I appeal to um, the work of Blaine Fowers, am I an applied social ethicist? Or am <laughs> <laughs> or am I just an overeducated pedantic dispenser of high grade baloney? <laughs> we'll have to find out. Um, than low grade baloney, though, that stuff will give you. The, oh yeah, when you get to dispense baloney, make it the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Another component of this. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Is that science, even though it sometimes gets portrayed um, in popular media as, as this detached, objective, disinterested, dehumanized process, um, which. Uh, Y'all talked about in the physics episode. Um, in reality, it is a very human process. I mean, mm -hmm. in the physics episode, talk, talk, uh, he talked about the uh, powerful emotional reactions and the motivations that are at work when a scientist is doing science. And what he's talking about is the psychology of science. Mm -hmm. So when we start talking about how the human element is involved when scientists are doing research or when research is or is not being published – uh, when we look at the public reaction to science as a discipline or the results of scientific studies, we're doing psychology. And so it might be a good idea to have a psychologist's perspective mixed in there somewhere. Hmm. Works for me. I'm well, sold. And I, and I am looking forward to this show. Uh, I just want to go ahead and make one more pitch. I know I've been pitching all episode. Uh, Book of Nature should start uh, releasing episodes uh, towards the fall semester, which is to say August. Uh, and we're going to be promoting it. We're going to be, you know, letting people know that it's on the way. And I just want to encourage you all who are listeners to the Christian Humanist Podcast, subscribe to that one on RSS feed or on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Uh, get some science folks listening to it because as with the Christian Humanist Podcast, as with the Christian Feminist Podcast, as with Christian Humanist Profiles, as with the Danny Show, although we're not going to call it the Danny Show, uh, the more the merrier. <laughs> So uh, I want to go ahead and thank our hosts, uh, David Grubbs, Michael Farmer, Charles Hackney. 
Uh, Michael, you are up next week. You're behind the wheel. What are we talking about? Actually, David is up next week. I was up last week. Oh, son of a gun. David, you're up next week. What are we talking about? I haven't the foggiest of notions. So once again, folks, you're going to have to wait. Now, here's where we're going to break off from the normal end of show script. Uh, we're actually going to talk very briefly about an email we received from Brett Gilbert. Uh, Michael, do you want me to go ahead and read that? I've got it. I can read it. Hit it. He says he loved the physics episode. He'd like to add one more to the list of proper reactions of the Christians Christian to the conclusions of quantum mechanics and physics in general. Awe of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I personally like to read about astrophysics and the things we've learned about stars, galaxies, nebulae, and all the interesting things in the universe around us, including what they're made of, how they were probably formed, why and how they're going to change zillions of years down the road, etc. The more I learn as a Christian, I say, wow, what a God this God is. We follow not only the creator of the universe, but its architect and artist, the one who not only formed the heavens, but imagined it. From the tiniest wave-like probabilistic motion of an electron, to the zooming through space of a water-covered Earth, to giant balls of gas like Jupiter and Nathan Gilmore, to comets, asteroids, planetary (laughs) systems, stars, clusters, galaxies, and on and on, we worship the God who dreamed these things up and understands them completely, condescending to allow us to delve into its inner workings and begin to understand this is how the Lord's creation operates. The heavens declare the glory of God, do they ever and i added that bit about nathan gilmore i don't know if brett yeah, thinks that yeah. or not <laughs> i couldn't resist yeah, I, I was like you got a different version than i got <laughs> I, I see insults for uh, against nathan where there are none yeah yeah i was gonna say we've got some uh, uh manuscript uh variants here <laughs> um awesome scribe must have added that a couple centuries after he sent the email yes indeed uh, so, folks, this wraps up our trio uh, with our Book of Nature hosts. Like I said, uh, keep your eyeballs open on the Facebook group, on the uh, blog. Uh, you can find us, of course, on that blog at christianhumanist.org. You can follow us on uh, Facebook. We have our own page there. You can subscribe on iTunes or on the RSS feed. You can do all of these sorts of things. You can also contact us, as Brett did, at the Christian Humanist at gmail.com. We ask you to do as many of those as you like. We love to hear from our listeners. So since I have no idea what we're doing next week, I will sign off at this point. This is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Charles Hackney, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>